Hello. Before we get started with the show, we wanted to draw your attention to our crowdfunding page on Patreon. If you've been enjoying Always Take Notes, please do consider supporting us there. It helps us to keep the podcast going. If you support us on Patreon, you can get a great selection of rewards, including a shout out on the show and a selection of successful magazine pitches. If you pledge $10 a month, you get a free two-month trial to Otter worth $26 alongside the other rewards. Otter offers automated transcription and live note-taking for in-person and virtual meetings. I found it to be a huge help when organising interview material. You also get access to a series of mini-episodes from previous guests on the show in which they answer three revealing questions. The latest episode features Aminata Fauna, and here's a snippet. The one piece of advice I wish I'd had at the beginning of my writing career was uh, get an agent. <laughs> and it's a piece of advice I give people. Get an agent as soon as you can. Actually, I got my agent relatively soon and um, he's been such a partner in the shaping and creation of my career uh, that that's the piece of advice I give everybody. A time that my writing hasn't gone so well is usually Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Simon speaks with libel lawyer and author Alex Wade. I spoke with Alex about the twists and turns of his own professional history and his move from the law to writing about what to do if you are a journalist or author and you receive a threat from a lawyer, and about his own books. It's a great episode. We hope you enjoy it. Alex, it's great to have you on Always Take Notes. Thanks so much for for coming on the show. I wanted to start, if we could, with this kind of moment when you were a younger, younger person, when when you sort of veered away a bit from the conventional career of being being a, a solicitor. So you're kind of late 20s, when things get a bit messy, and then how, how that began and how that, that kind of process worked for you and where it, where it took you. Sure. Yeah, well, uh, thanks for having me on. I didn't really veer away. I sort of um, uh, somersaulted, leapt, jumped. Um, any other uh, dramatic verb you could find um, was what really happened. Um, and I think, yeah, I was a relatively successful, young, high-flying lawyer, I uh, began my career at Carter Ruck. Um, I worked for Richard Desmond as his head of legal at a very young age. Uh, but I was a fairly troubled and frustrated person. And um, I guess in my late 20s, early 30s, uh, demons began to catch up. And to cut a long story short, um, I found myself um, involuntarily catapulted from the law. Could you, I mean, be as, be as frank or as guarded as, as you'd like to be, but could you tell us a little bit more about, about exactly what happened? I, I can indeed, and it's all in the, my first book anyway, so it's not exactly a public secret, even if it's 20 years ago, and I regret an awful lot of what happened. Um, I was uh, sacked for gross misconduct because I ended up um, in a relationship I shouldn't have been in. I was married. Uh, the tension of living lies and trying to keep a job going and doing it well became too much, and eventually, thanks to the... Um, uh, help of alcohol one evening at a work due. I, I just sort of lost the plot, really, uh, and redecorated the downstairs of a restaurant in a way that no one ever envisaged it being decorated. Um, in other words, I smashed a few doors up and things like that. And um, and the law firm employing me at the time had no option but to sack me the day after. And they did exactly the right thing. I fully deserved what I got. And how did that, how did you kind of feel you know, the next day when you're, you know, you've been on this one very clear trajectory, you know, clearly you were wrestling with some stuff personally, but, you know, professionally and from the outside world, it was all looking very good. How did, how did that feel? I, I, the day after was absolutely um, desperate. Uh, I woke up with a colossal hangover, 
various injuries from hitting inanimate objects <laughs> and kicking them, um, and knowing that I would be summoned into the law firm and, and let go. Uh, they duly let me go. I had a couple of young kids, um, and I, of course, felt, oh, my God, what have I done? I, how on earth am I going to provide for them? How is my wife going to be okay? Uh, and I remember sitting on a stone wall looking at a church, and all this happened in the um, leafy uh, Cotswold Delights of Cheltenham, um, and looking at this church and just feeling absolutely desolate uh, with failure and humiliation. Um, so, yeah, it wasn't a very good time uh, at all. As I say, I fully deserved it. I brought it all on myself. Would you say, in retrospect, 20 years on, that, that it was also an opportunity? You know, and looking, looking back, are you, are you kind of glad, or maybe glad is the wrong word, but, you know, that, that this was able to let you kind of move professionally and personally in a, in a bit of a different direction? Yeah, absolutely. The the cliche, and I can't remember which entrepreneur said this, but if you want to succeed, you've got to double your failure rate, was absolutely applicable to me because uh, essentially I was a frustrated writer. I'd, I'd ended up in the law, but I'd earlier on I'd been a journalist. I'd really wanted just to write. Uh, I found the private practice at the time. It was nothing wrong with the law firm whatsoever. They were great, but it was just it was a straitjacket for me, and I felt rather imprisoned. Um, but being sacked for gross misconduct, appearing to lose absolutely everything, ultimately led to me reinventing myself. And actually now, 20 plus years later or whatever it is, I think it actually enriches things in my perspective. And so makes me, in fact, a, probably a better lawyer than I ever would have been now that I'm back in the profession. So what I wanted to do, kind of as we talk further, is kind of you know using that as a bit of a pivot point in your life to talk about the firstly the kind of route to how how you got there, and then the route subsequently. So you know going back to the beginning, where where were your literary ambitions coming from, and then how did you end up becoming a solicitor along that way? Okay, um, looking right back at it, it was I had flu when I was twelve years old, really badly for a couple of weeks. But my dad, who himself is a solicitor, gave me um, the trial by Kafka to read. I don't know why he thought I could leap from Biggles books to the trial, <laughs> but he did. And, um, and I read it twice in two weeks. So I was absolutely captivated by it. Now, I think Kafka as a writer, of course, is, is just wonderful. Uh, equally, the trial is, is obsessed with the law. What is the nature of the law, this inaccessible thing? Um, so I think that's, that inspired um, an initial literary journey. And I soon got into Conrad and other writers and just read voraciously as a teenager. Um, and always felt that it was something I wanted to do. I was, I was good at English. I was always the one who won the English Prize every year and all that sort of thing. Um, law actually was something of an accident, really, because I went on from school to do a degree at UEA in American and English Literature, uh, went off to Australia surfing for a year after that, and then came back thinking, oh, well, now I'll be a journalist. Um, but it didn't work out like that. And then after another year of floundering around and amassing debts and all that sort of thing, I thought, hang on, what am I going to do? I have to get a career together. So I then did the law conversion course and went into law. That's how law happened. And how? what drew you to, to libel, to, to media law in, in particular? Well, again, uh, loving English as I did, loving literature and language, to go into libel law always seemed to me to be the best possible place I could end up because libel law is all about the meaning of words. It's all about forensically analysing them, sometimes not forensically analysing, just, just what's the texture of a given sentence. What's the texture of a given chapter, et cetera, et cetera. So for me to get into libel law was, was, was fairly quickly, as soon as I realised I was going into law, that was immediately what I focused on and was very lucky to get uh, what were then called articles of clerkship with Carter. Now one is a trainee. Which is a, tra it's a training contract, right? Exactly, it, yeah. yeah. That's right, yeah, yeah. 
Uh, and I was very lucky to get um, to get in with Carter Rowe, uh, almost sort of straight away. I wanted uh, at some point to come back to Biggles, which you mentioned earlier, which I also read voraciously uh, as a as an early teenager. And this is a digression, but um, but you know, W. E. Johns wrote off so many uh, British aircraft in flying accidents that had he been a German pilot, he would have been categorised as an ace. I think is the. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that's a, 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 a complete digression. But I wanted to, you know, coming coming to the law, and again, you know, for for listeners who aren't sort of that familiar with it, how would you summarise kind of how British media law is distinct? I suppose you know, particularly to the American, as example, we, we would get. But you know, the, the the environment that writers and journalists and and I suppose the lawyers who are advising them as well face in the UK compared to in in other parts of the world. Okay, I think the clear distinction between the US, for example, is in the US, there is the First Amendment. So there is a huge premium put on freedom of expression. It's harder to sue for libel in the States. It's, it's generally culturally, it's not a regular thing. It's not something the media obsessively have to worry about. However, when it goes wrong in the States, it can go very badly wrong because juries can still give awards and they can be multi-million dollar awards. Like, like with Gorka or something. Exactly, like that, exactly. Right? Yeah. Here in the UK, culturally, um, the UK has always been, well, one of the famous lines is London is the libel capital of the world. Uh, that probably remains the case, although Australia is competing quite well at the moment, I think. Um, here, culturally, we are used to lawyers sending in letters of action regularly on Fleet Street, for example, There'll be two or three a day, probably, uh, on most national newspapers. Publishers uh, live under that same fear as well, so do broadcasters. Um, I, as a lawyer, work, work on the side of the fence trying to get things published and broadcast and trying to see off the people trying to sue all the time. Um, so, yeah, yeah. And what was it like, you know, when in the 1990s, is it right that your first day in the office you had to go and deliver a writ to private eye? That's absolutely correct, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Could you tell us a bit about that? The first job that I was given was take this document. I don't even think I, I I'm not sure I even knew that it was a writ really. Um, but I was just told by a partner, here's this document in an envelope, go to private eye's offices across London in Soho and uh, make sure you deliver it. So that was the first job. And when you were, you know, as a young lawyer, what, what was the kind of the bulk of the business on a day-to-day -day basis that you were that you were doing? Was it pre-publication advisory or that kind of... No, this was working for Carter Ruck. Now, Carter Ruck are, are an excellent and very formidable law firm, but they're pretty much exclusively claimant only, or plaintiffs, as they used to be known back then. So um, back then, my workload as a young trainee and then as a newly qualified solicitor was helping the partners run cases on behalf of claimants. So, for example, back then... Uh, the Neil Hamilton case was a was a, a big one that I was involved in a fair bit. And more broadly within the world of libel law, what is the division of, of labour between, you know, or how much of the work is, is claimant based and how much is, is working with, with publishers and, and broadcasters, you know, in terms of the, the majority of the business, as it were? Um, it's probably an even split. I think culturally, as I say, in the UK now, we've become very sophisticated in how we deal with libel threats. Now, that, that means that there is there's a little mini industry of content lawyers. So I'm, I'm a content lawyer uh, who specialise purely in, whether it's broadcast or podcast or it's, um, it's online or it's a book. We know our way round how to navigate sentences, uh, frames in films, etc., to hopefully ensure they're legally safe and okay. Equally, on the other side of the fence, there's still a huge industry of um, law firms such as Carter Rack, Shillings, Harbottles, 
etc., who are primed and ready at any given moment to, to sue on behalf of their clients. And what, what I found interesting, I think in one of the TLS pieces you sent, I think you were talking about the, the publication story of Lolita in the 50s. And, and wasn't it Carter, like the original Carter Ruck himself who kind of got that out, right? That's right. Yeah, that was um, uh, Peter Carter Ruck, um, a, uh, the doyen of libel lawyers. Um, he played a, a, quite a significant role in getting uh, Lolita through the door in the UK not because of libel or anything like that, but because of the obscenity laws at the time. Um, and Carteruk, um, yeah, he engineered a very canny solution, which was to essentially publish the book during a recess of Parliament, so that in effect, no MPs could jump up and down and get angry about it. <laughs> Therefore, yeah. no one would think to prosecute it. And that, that very simple ruse, although no one else had thought of it, worked. And that, that's how uh, Lolita came to be published in the UK. And isn't it that the guy Keith, the guy who founded Shillings as well? Didn't he have a background originally working for Private Eye, like doing a lot of stuff, founding or kind of on the side of publishers? Simon, you're ahead of me there. I didn't know that about Keith Schilling. Um... Yeah, I, I I don't know. I, I, I you know, let's tread delicately what we say given the <laughs> given their reputation. But um, that's what I'd heard that he kind of had that. And I suppose I, mean, I suppose the the kind of broader question for that would be like you know. What is the sort of moral code if you're if you're a libel lawyer? Like, is it just you know, are you just is it just a job? Like, it's a, you know, you're a you're a gun for hire. Like, you're you're either working for one side or the other. Um, you know, I, I just find that fascinating that kind of Carter Ruck, who you know is is as you say renowned as a as a claimant based firm, um, came from this. You know, the, the guy sort of made his name on the other side. I just I just find it fascinating talking to lawyers. Like, how does it work? What is the code? Not not the law code, but the kind of you know the moral code, or how do you square? How's it all working? Does that does that kind of make sense? How do how do people frame to themselves which side of it they're doing, and can you do both and that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, morals and the law is always a very interesting topic. Um, for me personally, uh, I ideologically believe in the First Amendment. I believe in Article Ten of the European uh, Convention on Human Rights. I believe, therefore, in the right for people to publish and express themselves. So I personally want to help uh, publishers, broadcasters, etc., authors get what they want to say out there. Uh, and so for me, morally, that's where I'm coming from. Now, I wouldn't say that the corollary of that is that those on the other side are opposed to freedom of expression. I imagine what they would say is we simply act on our clients' instructions. Um, and if something is defamatory, if we regard it as defamatory, we We'll see. Because I, I mean, I sometimes wondered. You know, I mean, we're you know, obviously we've worked together as as we mentioned. But yeah, I sometimes wonder when I've received threats from lawyers, like, how do you feel about having kind of like written this? You know, what is it just a job? Is it just uh, you know, are you just acting on your client's instruction? And I suppose the corollary to that would be that, you know, presumably the money in general is on the side of the claimant based stuff. Is that right? Generally, yeah, I'd say it probably is. Uh, I'd also say, um, and uh, not including any of the firms I've so far mentioned, but, you know, I've had a little run in the last sort of three, four months of beholding letters before action by law firms, and they are preposterous. They're absolute nonsense, um, full of all this uh, sound and fury, ultimately signifying nothing. And I don't quite understand how the people writing those letters sort of almost can look at themselves in the mirror at the end of the day, because they're just complete nonsense threatening Armageddon over some uh, piffly little line in a, in a book or something. Um, I don't really understand it myself. Um, and it's not, not what I would like to choose uh, to do with my time. But it's often, I mean, it often seemed to me that you're working with lawyers on uh, bits of journalism and, and on my book as well with yourself was like, 
like it's a game, right? Like it's an elaborate, you know, as you say, you know, there's a set of rules that, that you know, every, you, the lawyer kind of knows. And it's about being in a sort of finessed way of like, you know, it, it's almost like fencing is kind of how I seemed a little bit of like, you know, there's parry and thrust and what you can say and how things are cast. Like, is that a fair way to, to kind of envisage it? Yeah, I'd say that a, a good friend of mine on and one of the claimant firms, he himself has said this, it, it, it's a game. We all go round and round playing this game. Uh, you're quite right. The fencing analogy is, is very apposite as well. Um, and as you'll know from your work on your book, uh, the things we work together on, it's, a lot of it is about nuance. Um, you know, you want to say X, but perhaps X could be something you could be sued over. So let's say X, but in a slightly different way. Uh, and ensure that, for example, it's protected by a defence, for example, honest opinion. I also, I mean, it's interesting what you're saying about yeah, these, these kind of letters, because this, I think, for most journalists or writers, this will be their experience that they will receive a letter, you know, from, from a law firm. And I'm often being struck from that process of, like, it's quite, it's deliberately as theatrical as possible, I find. Like, you know, you get this sort of email, uh, you know, there's then an attachment, there's lots of headed notepaper, there's all this kind of thing. It's all, you know, lots of very extremely aggressive language. But I've often tried to kind of, like, these letters often seem to be to be a mix of sort of copy and pasted things from legal textbooks, some like ad hominem attacks on the writer, and you know a lot of sort of sound and and, and trying to trying to you know it's interesting Patrick Red and Keith who we'd had on the podcast before who had a legal background he sort of said you know one thing he finds is helpful is because he's trained in the law he can kind of like pass a bit you know, what, what is bluster and what is real. And that, you know, seems to be something that, it, as you're kind of alluding to, presumably there is, on on the claimant side, like being able to bluster is is almost part of the job in some ways. Is that is that fair? Yeah. Or is there a risk in blustering that then if you do it too much, people know that you're just blustering? Yeah, I think there is very much. That latter point is absolutely correct. Now, for example, um, and I can't actually go into a, a given example right here, but something I legaled recently for a major publisher online international publisher we had um, probably 10 different salvos before we published um, threatening all, all manner of doom and having been in the game myself for 30 years or so I was confident all the way through that it was bluster that nothing would come of it now we published about two three months ago and we haven't had a word since but I guess they're doing their best in the meantime to try and intimidate the the particular publisher of this article the journalists um, they're acting on behalf of their client. They're doing what they feel is the best thing to do, to try and deter publication. Uh, one other point I'd just quickly make is, um, in the UK, there's been a trend recently where solicitors have been encouraged not to be so, uh, frankly, uh, bombastic or mad in correspondence. Some haven't got that message yet. But in the States, um, honestly, it's, it's quite extraordinary when you see American pre-litigation, uh, because it's not just insulting about the book and the... Um, uh, it, it's so personal and vindictive the way the American lawyers seem to pre-litigate. It's also interesting, isn't there, that there's a, a kind of slight power transaction going on with this before, like with um, uh, Ronan Farrow's reporting for, for The New Yorker on, on Me Too, that when he wrote his kind of backstory of that, he printed the legal letters, you know, that, that he had been sent. And something that I'd heard was a kind of evolution was happening was that suddenly that that because people can just put this stuff on up on the internet potentially i mean even if it's, it's got confidential branded all over it that suddenly the firms are kind of slightly realizing that 
actually a, a letter like this can be a liability to them as well as a threat. You know, I, th- I think there was an example recently where with one of these these young women who was talking about sexual abuse at um, a, a, a private school in the UK and, and the school's lawyers sent a sort of threatogram to her and she just told The Guardian about it. And suddenly everyone's like, you know, the, the, this idea that there's a kind of quite interesting line that, you know, a bombastic letter hopes to intimidate a journalist, but there is a potential that that can backfire if it comes into the public domain, right? I would say so, yeah. I'd say culturally, if you think back to when I started my career, there was no such thing as social media. Now, of course, um, it, it's everywhere and people have a very different perspective. I've got two grown-up sons, 26 and 24, who, so far as they're concerned, the, uh, you know, there's no such thing as copyright or libel or anything. They've grown up in the era of social media where anything goes. Now, that the corollary there again is absolutely as you say. People often may not hesitate in the way they might have done in the old days, and they might well just put a, a lawyer's letter out there. Um, it doesn't seem to deter some lawyers, though, because, and, and I would think that it would be the smart thing to do would be to be much more nuanced and much more... Um, there's no need for the level of aggression that you do see still. Is, is there any comeback from, you know, if, if someone puts up a lawyer's letter that it's branded confidential and stuff like that, can, is, is that illegal? Or what's the, I mean, how does that, you know, the, all, the fact that this documentation is always branded confidential, does that have, does that mean anything? Yeah, I mean, in theory, there's a notional breach of confidence action that could then follow. Uh, the actual realistic likelihood of anything, anybody going to court and issuing a claim form over that is, is I'd say, pretty much, pretty negligible. Can we then roll back to your own experience? So, you know, when you, you got your, your article clerkship, this extraordinary Dickensian term that they were kind of usually called. How do you, you know, how does it develop from there? And how do you get this, this gig with, with Desmond as well? Uh, well, I, I spent four years at Carter Ruck. Um, I learned an, a tremendous amount there. I mean, you know, p- people will say claimant Carter Ruck, but, you know, they're not the uh, the media's friend, but they are excellent. And um, it stood me in incredibly good stead the four years I had there. However, it was claimant work and it was essentially... Um, you know, I think politically, I'm very much someone in the centre, probably centre to left. Uh, their client base was much more to the right. And I was uh, not a great fit there, ultimately. And I think I realised that and they probably knew that as well. So um, I looked around for a job. One came along and it was to go and work for Richard Desmond when he back in the days when he was in the Docklands. He had OK magazine, but of course, a raft of top shelf mags, as everybody knows from back then. Um yeah, and I spent two years with, with Richard and again, learned an awful lot, actually. Did he did he have the Express at that point? No, he didn't back then, no, no. Okay. So what, what was lawyering for, for Desmond like? What, I mean, tell, I'm not sure how much you can say, but like, what would a typical typical day in that job be? Um, a typical day? Um, well, I, on a Monday, you'd start with a board meeting at nine o'clock and, um, and pretty much anything could happen in that board meeting. Um, <laughs> You know, allegedly someone was once told to get in a cupboard because they were late. Um, I couldn't possibly confirm or deny that. Um, and, you know, uh, Desmond is a very, very um, interesting, robust, charismatic, dramatic person. So um, uh, a given day was never the same and anything could really happen. And were you having to the kind of walk, deal with their interaction with obscenity law at that stage? Because it seems that, you know, that, that Britain did, in terms of top shelf magazines, did have very much more restrictive legislation, right, in terms of what could be shown and could not be than, than the rest of the world. Yeah, back then, uh, I mean, still, in many ways, the governing laws, you've seen Publications Act. Um, uh, but nothing has ever been sort of codified. It never actually spelt out what you could and couldn't do or show or whatever. Uh, however, there was this quaint thing called the Mull of Kintyre test 
for um, male genitalia. And as long as they were reflective of the mull of Kintyre, um, it was fine. <laughs> this, is, this is not showing not showing arousal, basically. Exactly, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then what is your move after that, after you've done the working for Desmond? Okay, so Richard, working for Richard for two years in London. Um, again, I think uh, we've hinted at this. I was I had definitely some issues and um, they were sort of starting to catch up with me and I thought I need to get out of London because I married two young kids and I could see that uh, temptations were possibly too much. So I ended up going to a law firm in Cheltenham, a very good media law firm that had its head office in Cheltenham. And the idea was to try and uh, live a more tranquil life. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't pan out like that. How, yeah, could you, how, how, what exactly happened? Was this, was this the route to you smashing up a restaurant? Yeah, it was, it was. It was, um, so the, the firm, as I say, is, is, is excellent. Um, but I managed to go and um, fall in love with someone, uh, which wasn't very helpful to anybody, really. And, um, and the resulting sort of tension of, um, of that led to this incident one night um, when, as I said earlier, the firm the day after had no option but to let me go. A message from our sponsor, Vitsu, Melvin's story. We love, love, love our Vitsu shelving. Build quality and ease of assembly is amazing, but it was your service that made the whole process such a joy. So said Melvin from Sydney in this heartfelt message to his Vitsu planner Sophie in London. Love is a word heard a lot at Vitsu. Other verbs just don't seem to cut it. As with any customer, Sophie considered every detail, so Melvin's bookshelves were perfect for his needs. Passionate about good service, she communicates with all her customers directly wherever they are in the world. Whether in person or on the other side of the globe, Vitsu's planners hold your hand throughout the process, time and again proving that long-distance relationships really do work. Every interaction is handled with love from Vitsu. Vitsu's 606 Universal Shelving System is a modular adaptable kit of parts. It can provide the perfect home for your books and even the desk from which to write one. Visit vitsu.com, that's V-I-T-S-O-E dot com, or request a free brochure via email at vitsu.com by quoting ATN 606. Vitsu, makers of long-living furniture by Dieter Rams. And then coming, you know, coming back to this kind of year zero in your, you know, how do you start pulling things, pulling things back together. And particularly, what was the role of, of um, white collar boxing then? You know, how did you, how did you get into that world? And then in terms of write, your writing as well. Okay, so after the, the first day of, um, after that moment of being sacked, of feeling just, I, I actually was catatonic. I couldn't really speak for a day of just, oh my God, what have I done? And then something just kicked in. I just, and how, how, how old are you at this point? I think I was Early 30, perhaps, something like that, 31, maybe. Um, but after the, a day of, uh, as I say, I was catatonic. I wasn't even feeling self-pity. I was feeling, I just couldn't speak or say or do anything. But then suddenly I just thought, hang on, I've got a wife who I've really let down badly anyway. I've got two kids uh, and you've got to get your act together, Alex. So I got on the phone to a couple of people. Uh, as I say, I was in Cheltenham at the time, a couple of lawyer contacts, and I managed to get work on the night lawyers of national newspapers in London, uh, The Independent and The Sun back then. Um, and so I soon took a bedsit in London um, 
and was basically a night lawyer, going, which is, again, great legal experience. It's fantastic. I'd recommend it to anybody who wants to understand how newspapers work and, and get a feel for libel law. Um, and I did that for about six months or so, tried to get my act together. Um, my marriage got back on track. Ultimately, it didn't work out, but it did get back on track for a while. But the thing that then happened was a friend of mine, um, a very sort of urbane and um, handsome barrister chap, um, had got into, got into boxing and he was being trained by a character called Umar Tate, who was an ex-con, been inside for um, GBH and some serious offences. He was a drug dealer and a pimp. Uh, in, inside, Umar, had, who had previously, as a teenager, been a heavyweight boxer, cleaned his, cleaned his act up and, and um, got into teaching boxing when he came out of his most recent stretch in prison and was teaching my friend, who was this barrister, I found the conjunction of this middle-class barrister who would often be prosecuting the likes of Umar or defending the likes of Umar uh, quite fascinating. And now here he was accepting Umar as the boss and, and the tutor. I pitched the piece to the Times, um, who said, yeah, we'll have that. And uh, it was one of the first pieces I wrote as a, as, a, as a freelance journalist. So again, sorry to jump around, but uh, in this process of of the beginning of reinvention, I realised I wasn't going to be happy unless I was writing. So at the same time as getting my sort of head together, I basically banged on doors and started pitching articles left, right and centre. In the evenings, I'd be a night lawyer and during the day, I'd try and write 800 words for The Times or The Guardian or whoever would say yes. And on, just on the boxing, I mean, how how much was it like Fight Club? I mean, that's the obvious kind of well, it, cultural touchstone that people would have. A fair bit, actually, because uh, so what happened with Umar is when I went and interviewed Umar for The Times, we sat chatting to each other in my friend's flat. My friend was out. And Umar and I connected and he looked at me very deeply in the eyes and said, you, mate, are precisely the kind of person who would benefit from boxing. And he said, I'll give you one free lesson. If you like it, we'll come up with a deal. I looked into white collar boxing. There'd been a few pieces about it, not just mine, but generally it was starting to gain a bit of traction. And I discovered that there was this world champion character who was a middleweight, which is roughly what I was. And I just came up with this ridiculous idea that I would challenge him for his middleweight title. <laughs> and Umar would train me to get there. Um, now, that fight never happened with this bloke, um, but I then got into amateur boxing generally and, um, and I found it, you know, an incredible uh, release. I was incredibly angry at myself for everything I'd done and the hurt I'd caused. So I actually didn't really mind turning up and uh, as, a, as a raw novice in my early 30s, basically taking a bit of a hammering almost every time I, I stepped into a boxing gym for about uh, nine months until I'd managed to learn how to put my hands up and defend myself. And then just stepping back a little bit to this, this job of night lawyering for a, for a newspaper. Again, you know, could you, for perhaps people who aren't familiar with that, like what does it involve? How does it, how does it work? And then I suppose culturally as a lawyer, you know, you'd been at Carter Ruck, the kind of doyens of the, of the claimant side. What was it like to be on, on the other side of the fence, as it were? Okay, um, I'd also worked for the Mirror um, as a night lawyer as well. And in fact, I probably worked for almost everybody as a night lawyer. It's, um, I, I love it because I'm, I'm a sort of part journo, part writer, part lawyer. So I really like being in a newspaper. You turn up there about four in the afternoon. The first pages you'll look at will probably be the obituaries, the letters page, things like that. Then you'll see the comment pages. And then... Just because, but just because of the schedule of production that they're... It, it, exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then you'll start to see from about sort of 5.30, 6 o'clock, you'll start to see the news pages as they get laid out. Now, it's fast fast moving, as you know, things can change within half an hour and suddenly everything is going to be reworked and redone. You have to think on your feet. Um, you cannot hang around in that job whatsoever. 
it's not a job for um, uh, lawyers who like their academic analyses. Uh, and I've seen this happen with um, people come on tonight, uh, uh, come and do training shifts with me, for example, at a given newspaper. And um, you say to them, what do you think of this story? And they go away for half an hour and they come back with a four page email that they're about to send to the chief sub editor. Uh, and that, that chief sub does not want a four page email. He just wants the shorthand we all use is, is it legal? OK or not? Um, he just wants to know legal. OK, if it's not legal, OK, please solve my problem. Please tell me what how I rewrite this bit or let's work together. Uh, looking at a screen together and let's come up with the appropriate wording. Uh, but never, under any circumstances, a, a four-page uh, letter of advice. And who who ultimately is in charge in that relationship? Is your, Are you providing advice or are you making a decision? Um, ultimately, you're, you're providing advice. At the end of the day, as a lawyer in any pre-publication uh, environment, you have to be very careful not to trespass into editorial decision-making. Now, the more experienced people in this field uh, um, probably have enough kind of weight with the people they work with to say, look, editorially, are you sure about this? You know, um, but generally speaking, you should really actually just confine yourself to the legal advice. This is defamatory. This is an infringement of privacy. This is going to get you in trouble. Have a rethink. Because this, again, I mean, you know, without getting into too much detail in my book, but it was a kind of interesting thing that I thought that it seemed that part of what had happened was that, that lawyers started making editorial decisions in terms of where what had been going on beforehand. And, and one thing I found interesting with that was it seemed to me that the lawyers were like extremely well trained to assess risk in one dimension, like in a in a legal dimension. But in terms of the the possible kind of ramifications reputationally or things like that in terms of going elsewhere, they seemed almost oblivious to that in some ways. And it seemed, you know, they, that that kind of thing it seemed that you know in they were very at the law but in terms of broader strategy there was a you know that was a very different proposition as it were yeah i think um you know you and i probably have to be discreet rather than um uh, speaking with too much largesse about your book but uh, it was a very good it's a great book it's a good book to work on i thoroughly enjoyed it but it's um I think you you unusually had a harder time than most in getting your book out. That's probably yeah. I think that's probably fair. Yeah. <laughs> we may not might not be an idea to say too much more, but um, but I think you were confronted, but let's let's say with um, a fair degree of uh, tunnel vision, uh, appropriately say, appropriately say, no doubt, given the lawyers and their their particular remit on behalf of their clients, but. Um, yeah, you had a bit of a tough time, I think. I, su I suppose the, the thing that I, my experience is that in, in media organisations, there's a kind of cultural sense that, that the objective is to get the story out, right? And that the lawyer, you know, that everyone, as you say, like the lawyers are kind of working towards, that the, that the culture of the organisation is about Absolutely. publishing. Um, you know, and, and that the lawyers are following that. Would that be a fair... Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the people I know, my colleagues at the law firm I work for, Reviewed and Cleared, we're, we're all content specialists. And every one of us wants to see a story published, wants to see a film made, wants an author to have his or her voice. Uh, and culturally, again, on Fleet Street, as you know from your work, you're working with lawyers who are they're on your side. Uh, sometimes, sometimes journalists don't know that. Uh, and I wouldn't be the only lawyer who's encountered a journalist with a bit of pushback saying, oh, my God, it's the lawyer. Um, we don't want to have to deal with the lawyer. The lawyer's going to be a roadblock. But that's not how we go about our business. Um, if we're doing it properly, we're trying to help. And it, and it works a lot better if, if the, the journalists and the lawyer are clear that they're on the same team and they're collaborating, right? I mean, that's always been my, my experience yeah, as well. Absolutely. I, I think it's only, it's only relatively sort of junior um, journos who might come in uh, who, who don't really know the score. But certainly 
Uh, newspapers such as the Times that I've worked with for many, many years now, everyone there knows the score, the journos and the lawyers, we're all on the same side. This is a slightly kind of different legal question, but have you been, you know, another point that's come up in, in other interviews we've done is the kind of IP explosion of, of recent years. So particularly the idea that with streaming services, who there's tremendous hunger for content, um, you know, optioning articles, books, that kind of thing, this kind of industry, that, like the, the magazine story industrial complex, as it were, that's, that's grown up. Is that something that you're, you've been kind of following from, from where you are? Um, I think in terms of the workflow that we have, uh, we've, we've been beneficiaries of it. There seems to be more content than ever. Uh, so I, I now have any number of independent podcast production companies, for example, who are having their work regularly go on Amazon and Audible. And they are going through the same pre-publication checks and balances that you'll be used to as a journalist working on the nationals, for example. Uh, again, streaming, TV, online, films. It is, curiously enough, sort of boom time at the moment. Could we talk about the, your other writing and how that's progressed, and particularly about your novel about Flax Large Shift, which is this novel about a, a newspaper lawyer going rogue at the, you know, and, and, and all that ensues from that. How did you you know, come... How, just tell us about you know, how your writing developed from those early freelance pieces and, and how it moved forward to books and so forth. Okay, so so the first book was called Wrecking Machine with Simon Schuster. That was uh, essentially an account of how I went off the rails and got into boxing. I'd always been interested in surfing, and love surfing. So the second book I did with Schuster was um, a literary sort of odyssey around the UK and Ireland surf line, as it were. Uh, but the novel, Flat Last Shift, um, I worked for the News of the World for a year or so, um, in what we now know as the era of phone hacking. Now, I knew nothing whatsoever about phone hacking. I would say that, wouldn't I? But I genuinely had no idea whatsoever. Um, uh, but round about that period of time, I, I just became fascinated by the idea of a lawyer who, instead of seeking to minimise or eliminate legal risks, actively went about trying to create them on a given shift at a, at a paper. And then I wondered, well, what motive could that lawyer possibly have? So I thought of one uh, very unoriginal, as old as the hills, that this particular lawyer... Reve revenge, right? Yeah, yeah, revenge. Um, this particular lawyer, on the last day of his shift as a night lawyer, uh, a new editor arrives. That editor cook-holded in 25 years ago, and he's catapulted into the memories of the past and decides, therefore, to engineer a series of absolutely a, a terrible contempts of court and uh, libels, etc. Now, contempt of court is an offence which is a strict liability offence. So if the editor has perpetrated a contempt of court, his newspaper under his watch, that editor can go to prison. So the premise of the novel is that this lawyer just loses it completely and, and goes around trying to engineer the downfall of this editor. It's, it's probably too elaborate, but, um, but it was just an idea I was just, just very intrigued by. I, I, I discussed this with, with another lawyer, actually, and he said this is a common legal fantasy to like, <laughs> that you, you kind of, is it? you like go, yeah, that you, you go rogue on your, on your, ter on your like worst client and, uh, and finally an actual thing. I suppose what I was interested as well is, you know, did you see this in the context of novels about newspapers, which is a sort of small, but, you know, Towards the End of the Morning by Michael Frey and Scoop, famously, Alex, um, Alex Starrett, who's a friend of mine who wrote his novel The Beast, which may or may not have been inspired by the Daily Mail. Um, you know, the, that, were you conscious of working in that genre as well? To a degree, um, but equally, I, I quite like mixed genre writing generally. So I merged fact and fiction in Flax's Last Shift so that there are real... Frances Gibb, who was the law editor, law editor of The Times for many years, she's in it as herself. Various other people are in it as themselves. Um, I also, I love writing obituaries, and I've written quite a few over the years for The Times. So the obit form was quite integral to my novel as well. So 
Yes, Scoop and the others you've mentioned, of course, there is a small but honourable tradition of, of sort of newspaper books. Uh, but I don't think I was, I don't think I felt that I was anchoring mine too much within it. Were you conscious, I mean, did you legal your own book in that, in that context? I mean, were you, were you conscious in a kind of metafictional way that there was a risk that your, your book about a libel law going rogue could itself be a libel risk? Um, that's a very good question. Generally speaking, in writing, I always say, if I'm, so if I'm writing something for one of the nationals, for example, I'll say, look, you know, I'm a libel lawyer, but have someone else read this, not me, because I'm wearing my writer's hat. However, yeah, you can't mark your own homework. Yeah, but then equally, I think it's uh, in some ways I feel that's a bit of a cop out as well, because if anybody's going to uh, should know their way around this landscape, it, it should be me. Um, so in writing Flat Star Shift and other things I've written, I would I didn't let's put it this way. I would prefer it if another libel lawyer read my stuff. But that libel lawyer would probably think, Alex knows what he's doing, so probably just glaze over it anyway. <laughs> so, um, and I think I probably ought to get it right. Could you tell us a bit about how your kind of professional life fits together now? I mean, you're, so you're, you're speaking to us from the south of France, which is where you live full time now, right? That's, that's right. And yeah. how, how, how does the mix of your, your different bits of work fit together? And, and how did you end up living on on the Cote d'Azur. Okay, so well, we're working for Reviewed and Cleared at the moment. I, again, as I say, we, we do content of all kinds. And thanks to the modern age, I can do that wherever I am in the world, as long as I've got a good Wi-Fi connection. Uh, so the work is continues to be as it has been for many years now. Um, we moved out here. I think it was a sort of, I, I'm in a new relationship now. I have a young daughter who's four. Um, I think we felt uh, we got in just before the, Brexit, the end of the Brexit transition period uh, so that we could apply for our carte de séjour. I think it was a sort of, I've been a francophile for many years. It was an itch we wanted to scratch and see how it goes. So we're, we're out here for two or three years. Um, and I have to say what's not to like. I uh, can't really argue with the French Riviera. And are you able to do, like, you can do your night lawyering shifts remotely now? Well, I, I don't work as a night lawyer anymore. I, I work, um, and I think the night lawyer culture is very much actually still a person in the building. Um, I think COVID changed that. I think there was a lot of remote night lawyering going on. But I think generally speaking, the papers, the night editor, for example, would always rather a lawyer being present. And I think the job probably does demand that, ideally. Uh, however, I, I work as a locum day lawyer for uh, the time still. Um, What's the, distinct, the distinction? That's, that's earlier in the day. Yeah, yeah. The so, shift that you're... And, and so you, the distinction is probably you've got more time to look at copies. So you're looking at sections which will be laid out and ready probably the night before with a few little tweaks. Uh, it's not the same fast-moving night shift work. And then kind of a slightly sort of broader question, but if, you know, if you are a journalist, as a lot of our listeners are, and you, you receive one of these, you know, highly bombastic, um, threatening letters from someone, what, what should you do? You know, what is your, you know, and obviously this depends if you're freelance, if you're with an organisation. And I mean, I, I vividly remember the first time I got one of these, I think not from a lawyer but from a you know PR firm I was in my early 20s I was stringing for the economist in, in West Africa and my editor his very experienced guy was like don't panic was like the kind of you know first first thing but in terms of yeah what what you do in that situation and what your different options are and stuff like that I think your editor was absolutely spot on don't panic at all uh, however intimidatory the letter is however aggressive the language um, you're not gonna die life will continue uh, and this will be dealt with. There will be a solution. So first, don't panic. Second, see what they're saying in terms of uh, timescales to reply. How, is the, and, see, and read it carefully. Are they, are they genuinely about to go down to court and issue a claim form within 14 days if you don't respond? 
Thirdly, talk to a lawyer. Um, I'm afraid it's that simple. You know, you can't ignore these things. Uh, and it may well be, it's not all one-way traffic, much though I ideologically believe in freedom of expression. There are, of course, times when publishers, newspapers, etc., get things wrong. And someone may be very grossly defamed, someone who's wrongly accused of being a paedophile, for example, the classic thing of the wrong picture in a newspaper. Um, you know, if you've somehow or other had a role in a mistake like that, then deal with it promptly and, and you know, treat it seriously. And if on the other side of the fence, if you are, as you say, falsely accused of being a paedophile or, you know, someone is, is blogging vitriolically about you online and things, what are your, what's the, the best strategy and the kind of tactics to, to play in that sense? I think, again, uh, depending on the source of publication, um, sometimes, sometimes it might be best just to completely leave it and forget it and treat it with the contempt it deserves. Um, Going to libel is, is, is probably should be a last resort. But again, if it's a very serious allegation like that, um, I, I would again talk to a lawyer and, and take professional advice. It's a rule of the show, as you know, that we always talk about money and how it relates to writing lives. So if you could tell us a bit about, you know, in terms of your, your working life now, how your income is split between the, the different things. But also to, to extend the question a bit, how, you know, if you do need legal support as a writer or or if you're, you're bringing a claim like how, what kind of sums are you looking at and how much does it cost to to, to engage in that process okay at the moment the um because i sort of went back into the law with reviewed and cleared properly about four years ago so and up to that point the the balance had always been 80 percent writing freelance journalism 20 percent law the last four years it's tilted the other way it's 80 percent law now um so that's that's the balance in terms of the, the cash involved um Someone who's, we tend to quote, uh, say 1,500 quid for a manuscript up to 100,000 words. If you're an author, you've written a 100,000 word uh, book, that's roughly what it's going to cost you to have someone read it professionally and advise on whether there are any legal issues or not. Um, I, and again, I would say this, wouldn't I? But that is pretty competitive. Most of our yeah, that that doesn't that doesn't seem that much given how long it, just how long it takes to actually read a book. And, yeah, yeah, and it, it like is. That. that is competitive. Yeah. Um, but again. My colleagues and I are people who've done this for years and years and years, so we're we're pretty efficient at, at this kind of work. Where does Reviewed and Cleared come from? Like, where is that a relatively new firm? Where does it fit into the the landscape of of people doing this stuff? Uh, Reviewed and Cleared was set up by a character called David Burgess about six or seven years ago as a joint venture with a firm called Wigan, which is one of the UK's best leading media law firms. Uh, David sold his uh, 50% stake in it to Wigan about a uh, year and a half ago. Uh, so now Wigan wholly own Reviewed and Cleared. Uh, Wigan uh, has one or two sort of spin-off ventures. This is one of them. Um, and it's, yeah, the firm has, has been an extraordinary success story. We, we, we kind of act for almost everybody now on the, on the pre-publication, pre-broadcast side of the fence. And can, can you be approached directly? I mean, can, can someone like call you up and ask, are, you know, asked to commission you. It's not like you have to go through a, an intermediary or, or anything like that. No, no, no. Just go to the website, find our details, email whichever one of us you, would seem to fit the bill. And yeah. who, who are the clients mostly? Is it, as you said, like independent podcasters, producers, publishers, or do you have like retainer jobs with... Is your newspaper work sort of through, through that avenue? Uh, no, actually the newspaper work, because I've been involved with The Times and The Guardian for so many years, I, I keep that as a sort of separate thing and just and continue to advise them on legal issues separately. Everything else I do is through Reviewed and Cleared. The Reviewed and Cleared as a firm, acts for major publishers, major broadcasters. 
Um, you know, the diet of work is very varied. So on the one hand, I might be advising Scribe, your publisher, on something they're doing. Canongate, for example, on a book they're doing. I might be helping the BBC out with Peter Crouch's show. Um, <laughs> uh, or Legaling this week, I'm doing a documentary on Juventus Football Club. Uh, so it's very varied and um, yeah. Could you um, kind of come back to your own work? Tell me about this this new book that you've literally just got a, a deal for this this football book. Yeah, well, I, I'm an Englishman abroad down here on the Riviera. I, I'm beguiled by life here. I mean, it, it's incredible. The weather is just so good and culturally, it's fascinating. We're right on the border with Italy. Uh, so the other night, having watched France before they went out, of course, um, last week, uh, one particular game, I just suddenly the idea popped into my head of um, how does the Mediterranean influence football? So uh, the title of the book is A Season on the Med, t- subtitled something like Football Where the Sun Always Shines, from Valencia to AEK Athens. I've loved my football for many, many years. So essentially the book will be a blend of travelogue, cultural odyssey and football reportage, um, trawling around all the famous clubs from Valencia to Barcelona to Nice to Marseille, Monaco, Genoa, Napoli, etc., Venezia, um, looking at those clubs. Because you, 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 follow, you, you follow QPR. I, I do, yeah, yeah. So this is, this is like the other, the other end of football. How can you say that? <laughs> <laughs> no, this, this book is um, perhaps it's a sort of, yeah, it's a frustrated QPR fan's book, I don't know. Can we, I mean, how do you sort of in, you, you write about sport more generally football here but also surfing is your is your big thing when you've been like approaching these which i think we've discussed before how i read william finnegan's book on surfing which i was beguiled by despite knowing nothing about the sport whatsoever how do you approach sport as a as a writer my i've had like a, an unlikely career doing some writing about football which i'm not a fan of at all and i've I've done big football pieces that I've been asked to do. And I think I keep getting asked to do them because, because it doesn't have an emotional attachment for me. I've approached it in a pretty kind of like unsparing way with my back to the pitch, as it's been described. <laughs> um, but I mean, how do you, you know, what, what have you got in mind when, when you're writing about sport and, and particularly, I suppose, about surfing? Well, uh, my sports writing formally, I'm now 55 and I've, as you know, Simon, I've, I'm recovering from a knee up at the moment. I'm a, I'm a fading force, but certainly my, um, if ever I was a force... But certainly my approach in, in the past was um, it was kind of action journalism, method journalism. So um, as a surf writer, I was a surfer. As a boxing writer, I did my fair share of white collar and amateur boxing. So I would viscerally uh, seek to inhabit that space. And uh, well, what's it like to surf a, a 12 foot wave, you know, uh, which is the biggest I ever surfed. Um, you know, uh, that was very much my, my shtick for um, and other various extreme sports, a bit of climbing, mountaineering, that kind of thing as well. Not for football. I mean, I love playing football. I've played it all my life. Um, but foot- I had a stint doing games for the Times and I think actually betrayed myself because I was in the QPR press box and um, it was nil-nil with one minute to go. Paul Furlong scored a goal and I leapt out of my chair with delight. But in the press box, I then quickly learnt, you don't do that. You, know, you, you do not betray your allegiance. Um, we had Henry Winter on the show, the chief football correspondent at the Times. Um, at the time we recorded this, we haven't put it out, but I think when we, when we put this out, we will have. And yeah, we tried to get him to admit who he supported with like absolutely no success whatsoever. Well, he's he's a proper pro, you see. <laughs> uh, I, I'm a dilettante, I think probably. Um, Do you find, um, you know, when you're wearing when you're doing your writing, you know, that, that you have to kind of consciously put your lawyer's hat to one side and vice versa? I mean, do you find that they're they're sort of different parts of your brain that you're engaging with these these two projects, or do you feel that they 
they kind of ultimately complement each other. I think they really do complement each other. I, I genuinely do. I think that, um, you know, hopefully when I work with a writer on a book, the fact that I am a writer as well means that if, if I have got to get the red pen out and say, look, you've got a problem here, I can come up with suggestions which are hopefully helpful and not some uh, desperately clumsy thing that the writer is just going to be aghast at. Um, so I do think the two things inform one another. However, when I'm writing, I'm also working on something else at the moment, a comic novel. Um, I like very much in that space to completely forget the law. I really do. Uh, uh, I just write, write freely. And the, the question we always ask fiction writers is with their novels, do you, are you a plotter or a plunger? Do you work out the, the, the arc of your plot and your characters fully in advance? Do you know where it's going or do you let it unfold, let your subconscious? I'm a plotter. Um, Black's Last Shift took years and years to write. It was in my head for years, but I had it, I had it from start to finish. I just knew where it was going to go. And I had a chart as well of, of how it would be mapped out from, from very beginning to end. The comic novel I'm writing at the moment, I again know pretty much where that's going to go exactly as well. However, all writers will agree, in the writing process, things come up. And that's a delightful, that's, that's the thing that makes you do it, I think. Because you suddenly find yourself having written a sentence and think, my God, I didn't know that was going to go that way. Excellent, I really love that idea. And then you play with it and explore it further. We're coming up against our time a bit now, but I had a, a kind of final question, which was if, if you hadn't smashed up that restaurant when you were a young guy at Carter Rock, if you'd stayed in that groove, in that professional groove, where would you be now and what would you be doing? You, you, and, and uh, you know, how would your life compare then to, to what you do now, do you think? Less interesting, it seems. One quick thing I should say, it wasn't at Carter Rock when that incident happened. Um, so, so, but um, I think, where would I be? If I'd had the right temperament, I'd be a hell of a lot wealthier than I am now. <laughs> so, because friends of mine who stuck with the law and didn't have the huge hiccup I had are all probably on the brink of retiring. As I mentioned earlier, I'm 55 and I'll be working till the day I drop, for sure. You know, living, having lived a relatively chaotic life. Um, um, but I didn't have that temperament. So, you know, uh, I, don't, I, I do regret things. There's no question about that. About um, that period of my life for a couple of years was... You know, I was off the rails and a, a very difficult individual and I hurt people. And that's, you know, horrible to look back on. But ultimately, to have the career I've got as a writer, journalist and lawyer working in this kind of law, which I find fascinating and I really like helping writers, broadcasters, etc. You know, it's, it's, it's luckily, by uh, luck rather than judgment, it's worked out well. Actually, one, one additional kind of technical question almost before we go, but the... GDPR and privacy, I mean, again, without going too far into, into our experience working together, but these seem to be the kind of new, new trump cards that are, that are bought out when, when you know, lawyers are threatening reporters and stuff like that. Like, what, you know, what, can, what does GDPR and, and privacy mean in this situation and what, what doesn't? Because it seems that there's a bit of confusion about it. Well, the GDPR um, is, is wielded a lot now, and it's, it, it seems to be tacked on to the ends of letters. Uh, and I personally think it still remains a little bit of an afterthought. However, I'm not minimising its dangers. Privacy has been around for a while now, and privacy is quite a live issue, and, and any, anybody publishing anything needs to be wary of privacy. A very good example at the moment, of course, is the Matt Hancock video. Uh, now... I think there's a very clear public interest in, in publishing the story about Matt Hancock and his affair, etc. However, should the video have been published? Did, is there a public interest in seeing Matt Hancock in that clinch? 
the video as opposed to the still image or any footage or any anything the video the video uh, you could take it better than say even the still image um i think there's a definite public interest in in hancock's apparent um hypocrisy conflicts of interest etc but a clinch with a, a another person uh, as on video did, did did the public really need to see that i don't know but but could you could you run that story without that? Because you know, the, the the image is the proof, right? I mean, the image is what makes it indisputable. You could certainly run it. Um, any number of times stories are run where the proof is held back, uh, with the with the, the the publisher, the newspaper, whoever knowing we've got this evidence. You could certainly have run it. Interesting. And which way do you see that going going forward? I think the tension in the UK at the moment is that libel remains something that everybody has to be worried about, but is less of a danger than it was certainly when I began my career. Privacy now is is much more significant and is likely to continue to go that way, I think. All right, Alex, well, we're, we're up against our time limit, but thank you for being a fantastic guest on Always Take Notes and wishing you all the best with your, um, your various projects going forward. Thank you very much, Simon. That was the Always Take Notes interview with Alex Wade. He works for Reviewed and Cleared. You can see his website at alexwade.com and Flax Last Shift, his novel, is published by Blue Mark Books. Hello, it's us again. I unfortunately had to miss this interview due to work obligations, but Simon, what was your main takeaway from your chat with Alex? It was a really fascinating chat. I mean, I know Alex, as we alluded to in the interview from the, the work that he did on my book, The Changing Regard. Um, I mean, he's just a you know, he's a really good lawyer and he's also a really like smart strategic thinker and he's also worked as a writer so he, he crosses those two sides of it but it's fascinating to hear him speak very candidly about his own personal history from the, the time that he got fired and then his sort of personal redemption through white collar boxing uh, of all things and now how he's kind of rebuilt his life in a interesting and different direction so I'd also say like if you're ever in a tough spot he's a really good person to get in touch with so I'd, I'd recommend him that way anyway Rachel what have you been up to uh, alongside my job my diploma is actually coming to an end so um, having some of my final development meetings with my writer this week and next and then I'll be submitting my portfolio so that's gone incredibly quickly how about you congratulations on on finishing that well I haven't passed yet so <laughs> Maybe that's not jinx so. well I'm sure that will be that'll be fine um I've been attending a court case actually this week for a possible magazine story which has been interesting I haven't done that for a while and it's been nice to be out and about reporting and then doing um uh, some revisions to this proposal um, and juggling various other magazine balls. So it's been it's been kind of busy, but but good. Uh, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Aikum. And me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer and social media editor is Artemis Irvin. Our score is by Jess Danheiser and our graphics are by James Edgar. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes on Twitter at Take Notes Always. If you'd like to support us via our crowdfunding page on Patreon, that's under Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes or get in touch with us via our website, please do. Many thanks. Goodbye.